0: Welcome back to my Bible study podcast, From Heaven to Eternity. I'm Ryan, and today we're jumping back into the book of Habakkuk, the eighth of the minor prophets. Last episode, we focused on the big picture aspects of the book. We read through it, we outlined it, then we developed some themes and some applications from it. If you missed it, I highly recommend checking that out and taking about 10 minutes to read through the entire book of Habakkuk. Today we're going to cover some of the nerdier areas, some of the areas I find interesting and enriching, but that maybe aren't essential for getting a big picture image of the book. We'll chat about a few of the key verses from chapter 2, Habakkuk 2.4 and Habakkuk 2.14. We'll try to expand on a few topics related to the conquerors of Jerusalem the historical distinctions between the Chaldeans and the Babylonians, and then how God can use wicked people and evil empires. Then we'll land the plane talking about chapter 3. What exactly is it? Is it Habakkuk's prayer, his worship song, or all of the above? And we'll end on Habakkuk's confession of trust and faith in God, despite how bleak the short-term outlook might have looked for him. In the end, we're reminded that the book of Habakkuk shows us that trust can produce patience that produces perseverance, and that allows us to wait for the Lord and his timing. It's about an authentic communication that leads us to an authentic trust and promotes within us a vibrant worship of God. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Habakkuk 2.4 ESV translation. So we'll start this episode with one of the most well-known verses in chapter 2. There is a slight variance between the different translations of chapter 2.4, and that sometimes gets picked at. It's on the last word, faith versus faithfulness. The ESV, the NASB, the King James, and the CSB all say faith. The NIV and the NLT say faithfulness. I suppose if you really want to get nuanced, you could say that there is a difference. Someone told me to live by faith, I would take that to mean displaying faithfulness. And if someone told me to display faithfulness, I would see that as living by faith. I guess you could argue that faithful acts stem from faith, just as in the New Testament we see that faithful works are an unavoidable result of faith. Again, there might be some nuance, but to me they're all inseparable. They go hand in hand, and I'm not going to die on a hill trying to explain which one should be the right translation. Regardless of the word your translation uses, this verse is underlining the difference between two types of people. The unfaithful, who live a life void of faith and are declared by God as unrighteous, and the ones who live faithful lives, the ones who place their faith in Yahweh and who are the ones who are declared righteous by God. If you zoom out, this is simply declaring the fact that there are only two types of people in the world, those who believe in Christ and are saved, and those who do not. Looking through the New Testament author's use of this verse can also help us out here. The verse is cited three times in the New Testament, twice by Paul and once by the mysterious author of the book of Hebrews. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17 say, For I am not ashamed of the good news of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it is revealed God's righteousness from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11 says, Now that no man is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous will live by faith. And then Hebrews chapter 10, verses 37 through 39 declare, In a very little while, he who comes will come and will not wait, but the righteous will live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the saving of the soul. If I had to sum up the book of Hebrews in one sentence, it would be Jesus is better than everything else. And here in Hebrews chapter 10, we see that the author is anticipating the second coming of Jesus, and that those who have faith in Jesus as greater than anything in this world will experience the saving of the soul. John MacArthur notes that the emphasis in both Habakkuk and the New Testament references goes beyond the act of faith, to include the community of faith. Faith is not a one-time act, but a way of life. The true believer, declared righteous by God, will persevere in faith as the pattern of his life. I'd argue we see that a common thread between Habakkuk and the New Testament authors is that through faith we can rest in the promises of God. Part of that faith is communication with God. It's doing what Habakkuk eventually does in chapter 3 when he reflects on what God has done and who God truly is. It's a rest in the promises of God that allows Habakkuk to persevere despite the upcoming exile. That allows Paul to persevere despite multiple imprisonments. That allows us to persevere through whatever circumstances seem to be overtaking our lives. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14 ESV Translation So in the book of Habakkuk, we see that the Babylonians are going to continue their conquests. They are coming to town and Jerusalem will not stand. The Israelites will be carried off to a foreign land, far from the promised land. But here in Habakkuk 2.14, we see a couple things happening. First, we hear this verse echoed across the Old Testament. This phrase shows up in Numbers 14, in Psalm 72, in Isaiah chapters 6 and 11, and here in Habakkuk 2. This is a reminder that all of the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, and it was clearly something that was needed throughout the history of the Israelites. Second, we see a contrast between the Babylonians, who desire glory for themselves over all the earth, But will fall short, and then God, who will fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. This is yet another reminder that our God wins. And all of which lead to a major application point. The suffering of God's people must precede God judging the wicked and saving the faithful. Even when it looks like the wicked are winning, God will not let them stand unjudged. God's people may experience hardship, But that isn't the end of the story. So in the last episode, I mentioned that some translations might have different names for the group of people that will conquer Judah, destroy Jerusalem, and send the Israelites into exile. The ESV, Nazvi, King James, and CSV all say Chaldeans. The NIV and NLT say Babylonians. I noted that while the Chaldeans might be a more literal translation, they were really just a people group that became dominant within the Babylonian Empire. So while they aren't perfectly synonymous, they are both referencing the same nation. I figured I'd expand on that some here in this episode today, because, well, this is the nerd out session. So generically, the term Chaldeans is from a reference to the people of Chaldea. Chaldea was a land in southern Babylon, and it mostly spoke about the land that's along the Persian Gulf between the Arabian Desert and the Euphrates Delta. According to Britannica, it was first mentioned by the Assyrian king Ashurnasirpal II. In around 850 BC, the Assyrian king Shalmaneser III conquered Chaldea, and it became part of the Assyrian Empire. In the early 600s BC, Assyrian power and control began to wane, And so around 630 BC, Nabopolassar became king of Chaldea. And then in around 626 BC, he was able to overthrow the Assyrians and he became king of what ended up being Babylon. He was a native Chaldean, so the local people backed his rule. He also oversaw a number of infrastructure updates to Babylon, including updating the canals and their aqueduct systems. He also was an active participant in all of the wars against Assyria. Eventually, the Babylonian Empire helped conquer the Assyrian Empire. Nabopolassar's son, King Nebuchadnezzar II, also saw military successes in Egypt at places like Carchemish, and he eventually conquered the Israelites as well. Under his rule, the Babylonian Empire stretched all the way to Egypt. Because the prominent line of Babylonian rulers were all Chaldean, And were from chaldean descent the term babylonians and chaldeans became fairly interchangeable in ancient texts all of which were really referencing the babylonian empire after nebuchadnezzar ii there was a series of pretty chaotic leadership highlighted by mediocre kings assassinations murders uprisings and general turmoil in pretty short order actually the empire started to collapse and the mighty city of babylon ended up falling to the persians without even a fight I don't know how much of that is pertinent to reading the book of Habakkuk, but it was interesting to me, and hey, this is the Nerd Out episode. I guess I can get this wagon back on the tracks by making a note about the conquering villains of Judah, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, whichever your translation says. God makes it clear that his using a person or a nation does not equate to God endorsing or condoning that nation. We can look to Pharaoh for some guidance on this, right? Like in the book of Exodus, God uses Egypt to enslave the Israelites. Then he uses Pharaoh to show everyone who the one true God was. And spoiler alert, it's not Pharaoh or any of the little g Egyptian gods. The ten plagues were direct attacks on a number of the gods worshipped by the Egyptians. God then redeems his people from the Egyptians in the Exodus. I'll probably be doing a podcast on that soon, but for now just know that the Exodus involved God appointing a wicked nation over God's people. Then for God to redeem his people out of their hands, eventually bringing them out of the wilderness and into the promised land. The Exodus was the most important and most remembered event in Israelite history. Now, here in Habakkuk, we see that the Israelites were once again going to be removed from the promised land, ruled over by a powerful and wicked foreign empire, and that they would one day yet again be brought back into the promised land and receive redemption. It is no coincidence that in Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk reflects on the Exodus event as a way to recall the promises that God had fulfilled. The Exodus is where Habakkuk can find his faith renewed. That God has come through before and will come through again. Just because God might place his people in a seemingly disastrous situation does not mean that God has forgotten or forsaken his people. God is a faithful promise keeper and to those who persevere, who place their faith in Christ, who live by faith, God promises that they will receive the gift of eternal life. A prayer of Habakkuk the Prophet set to victorious music. Habakkuk three one. So music or prayer or song or dance, the World English Bible says set to victorious music. The NLT says that this prayer was sung by Habakkuk, but other translations use distinctly different words. In fact, if you're reading most of the more mainstream translations, then you'll get something like Upon or according to Shigeonoth. So If you are reading along and get to a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigionoth, you're probably either going to skip over that word entirely, or you're going to be slightly confused as to what it's really saying. I would love to say that I can completely clear these things up for you, but in reality, that's still kind of a question mark. The Hebrew word in question is Shigion. It's spelled S-H-I-G-G-A-Y-O-W-N. Usually, you can go to the Hebrew root word and get a fuller definition, or you can get clarity through cross-referencing the word with other passages, but in this case, not so much. The word is only used twice in the Old Testament, here in Habakkuk 3.1 and at the start of Psalm 7. The ESV translation of those verses are, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth, and A Shigian of David which he's saying to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. It's also not a word that's used very frequently in other ancient Hebrew texts. Interestingly enough, in the Latin Vulgate, the translation of the Hebrew to Latin, we see that the author translated this word as "ignorationibus," which means ignorant. I cannot speak of why that word Joyce was used, only that translators over the past few hundred years have not chosen this word they have either pointed more toward the musical aspect of it or just use the word Shigionoth directly. This is actually a really good reason why I always advocate for source translations from the original Hebrew texts, not transcriptions from ancient Latin. And it's also why some of the oldest translations can cause some confusion, and we should go off of some of the newer translations at times because they have more up-to-date information. But going back to the Hebrew, we can take a look at some of the Dead Sea Scroll fragments of the book of Habakkuk, and we're not assisted here either. So there are two scrolls from the Dead Sea Scroll collection that have Habakkuk 3 portions in them. Scroll Nahal Hever, though, had only the last half of chapter 3 recovered. It doesn't have the verse in question. And while the scroll Wadi Murahabat contained all of chapter 3, there are some unreadable letters within the first verse. So. All that to say that the best we've got today seems to point toward it being a musical term. It might just reference a song or the type of song, or it might be a musical term to assist the musicians. Both Psalm 7 and Habakkuk 3 are vibrant worship songs praising Yahweh, so the musical and song portion would fit. Strong's Concordance identifies that it might be a reference to a rambling poem, and it might also be a reference to a wildly passionate song with rapid changes of rhythm, all of which would also fit the two uses that we see in the Bible, as worship prayers that do not follow super-flowing and rhythmic contexts. According to Van Gemmeren, the exact meaning is uncertain, that it's an obscure superscription. But again, the general agreement is that it is probably related to a Hebrew root word that could indicate a type of psalm with a sporadic rhythm or a frenzied cadence. This is all backed up by other context words within the chapter, like selah, which probably was a musical pause for dramatic effect. That word is used here in chapter 3, and it's also used in a lot of musical psalms. So, shugayan, off. A song with random wild rhythm changes, a prayer set to victorious music. However, you want to look at this word. It is a word that, from a Bible study perspective, seemed to underline Habakkuk's prayerful vocals, were sung by the prophet himself. Similar to Moses' song of deliverance at Exodus 15, or the vibrant worship songs that David had among the Psalms. It would also have been treated as a worship song over time, where people read through it with a mind toward praise of the Lord God Almighty. So, as you read through Habakkuk chapter 3, let this phrase, this word, put you in a worship mindset. Because it is used in the New Testament, and because it reinforces the statements to Abraham in Genesis and the statements of Paul, Habakkuk 2.4 is often the most well-known verse in the book, the verse that ends, the righteous will live by his faith. But don't sleep on Habakkuk's declaration of trust and his confession of faith at the end of chapter 3. Habakkuk 3.17 says, For though the fig tree doesn't flourish, nor fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive fails, the fields yield no food, the flocks are cut off from the fold, and there is no herd in the stalls. So here in verse 17, we see that Habakkuk is realizing that he's going to get cut off, that the nation of Judah is going to get cut off from their prosperity. But he continues in verses 18 and 19, and they're beautiful. Yet I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. Yahweh the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like deer's feet and enables me to go in high places. So Habakkuk ends with the prophet being able to find faith in the midst of folly. He's not delusional. He knows that the promise of the promised land was in its productivity and the prosperity that God had provided and he notes that those things are gonna be removed by God. The productivity of the land has been taken away and the prosperity of the people is gonna be removed to Babylon. But Habakkuk also confesses to live by faith despite these circumstances. He chooses to trust in the Lord and the salvation that only God can provide. As Thomas Schreiner notes, Habakkuk will rejoice in the Lord and such rejoicing never takes place in a vacuum but it's rather rooted in Yahweh's saving work on behalf of his people. Trust in the promises of God and trust that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Unless otherwise noted, all Bible verses were from the World English Bible translation, which is in the public domain. The historical parts about the Chaldeans were contributed to by a Britannica article on the ancient Middle Eastern state of Chaldea, by Jewish Virtual Library and then Latin Library online articles on the Chaldean Empire. I apologize for some of the words that I butchered. I am not good at Babylonian pronunciations. I'm not sure if next week's episode will continue through the Minor Prophets, picking up with the Book of Zephaniah, or if I might deviate for an episode or two. I'll probably keep with Zephaniah, so if you're looking for a reading plan, you can go ahead and start reading through the Ninth Book of the Minor Prophets. Until next time. I love y'all.